Hello and welcome to the Technocast. I'm Edwin Gilson. We're back to our usual format this week after a slightly different episode last time out, and we've got a new theme to boot, Narratives of Nation. Over the next few episodes, we'll hear about the ways that nationhood and national identity have been constructed and represented across a range of media and historical contexts. And who better to kick us off than Lily Toiteau, a PhD researcher at Brunel who looks at the mixed identity of the French region of Alsace, particularly through the lens of gender and war memorials. I'll be back for a chat with Lily later, but for now, it's over to her. German, I don't want to. French, I cannot. Alsatian, I am. This 20th century Alsatian dictum perfectly summarises Alsace's identity struggles. The multiple changes of nationality, four times between 1870 and 1945, have created a hybrid identity in the region. Neither completely French nor German, the local population shares in both nations' construction, history and identity. Between the Vosges and the Rhine, Alsace took part in the construction of both French and German nation-states. Alsace was French during the Revolution, one of the crucial events in the French national narrative. In 1871, Prussia's victory against France marked both the creation of the German nation-state and Alsace's integration into Germany. One region, two founding national narratives. Both nations argued about Alsace's identity. For the French, participation in the revolution and the republic was a clear sign that Alsace is French. For Germany, the Germanic traditions and local dialect, the version of High German, clearly define Alsace as ethnically German. One region, two narratives of identity. This disagreement about the local identity led to the region changing hands several times. In 1871, as France was defeated in the Franco-Prussian War, Alsace was ceded to Germany. It remained German until the end of the First World War, when Germany had to return Alsace to France as part of the peace negotiations. In 1940, after France's defeat against Nazi Germany, Alsace was annexed by the Third Reich before being finally returned to France in 1945. One region, two nationalities. With each change of nationality came a complete cultural, political and economic change. The local population had to quickly adapt to a new language, new laws, new names, a new form of government, so on and so forth. At school, this meant a complete change of curriculum overnight. From French to German language, from the history of the Republic to imperial history. For the people living through those changes, it meant learning both languages, histories, identities, and most importantly, when to perform such identities. One people, two national narratives. After both the First and Second World Wars, as Alsace had just returned to France, the construction of memory began. In Alsace, this process was particularly complex. Having just rejoined France, the local German experience was at complete odds with the national memory narrative of French victory and pride centred on the figure of the powerful marching French soldier. Having a French soldier on Alsatian memorials would make little sense to a population whose sons mainly fought in the German army. At the same time, having a German soldier on the memorials of a newly integrated region that still needed to prove its loyalty was not acceptable for France. 
in Alsace, images of women have therefore replaced that of the marching French soldier. Without uniforms, these women appear as nationally neutral and allow for both the local German experience and the French memory narrative to be commemorated in one shared space. One war memorial, two memory narratives. I am aware that the subject of this series is narratives, plural, of nation, singular. But if you'll allow me, I'd like to operate a slight change. Alsatian memory is a narrative, singular, of nations, plural. On Alsatian memorials, femininity is used as a compromise between several narratives. The French national narrative, the German historical narrative, the local identity, and the narrative promoting international peace and reconstruction. So how can the analysis of gender representations on war memorials reveal these sometimes conflicting narratives? The construction of Alsatian memorials started in the interwar period, as Alsace had just returned to France after almost 50 years under German authority. This return was far from easy. Despite the apparent initial enthusiasm for the end of the war and the return to the French nation, mistrust between Alsace and the rest of France rapidly led to some uneasiness, and the local population had to prove their rights to French citizenship and their loyalty to the French nation. Alsatian war memorials were therefore built at a time when the local German experience was silenced. And at first glance, Alsatian memorials do appear as apolitical or at least a national. Though most inscriptions are written in French rather than German, the traditional French inscription to those who died for the fatherland or the nation is absent from Alsatian memorials. Instead, the dedication remains neutral with a simple to our dead or to the children of the village who died victims of the wars. On the images, statues and bas-reliefs illustrating the memorials, national allegiance is rarely obvious. Images of soldiers in uniforms are extremely rare, replaced by a few naked men, and mainly by women. These images usually represent mourning women, in sorrow, sometimes carrying a wreath or some flowers as if visiting a grave. The many inscriptions dedicating these memorials to the children of the village bestow a motherly role upon these women. They are the mothers mourning their sons. In Brumat, for example, the memorial is made of a statue representing a woman holding her dying son in a position reminder of the religious iconography of the Pieta. The man is naked, with a simple bit of cloth covering his modesty. On the statue's base is simply written, To our dead. No list of names, no uniforms. Nothing on the memorial suggests which nation the young man died for. The mourning mother is a universal figure shared by both sides of the conflict. All nations were faced by the pain of mourning mothers after the war. Images of mourning parents can be found on both French and German memorials. But this central image of Alsatian memory plays a crucial role in the region. It avoids taking clear sides between France and Germany. It allows for all men, regardless of the uniform they died in, to be remembered together in one space. And this was a particularly important issue in villages where some men fought for France whilst others fought for Germany. For the families, ensuring that all would be remembered on the memorial, regardless of their uniform, was part of the post-war grieving and reconstruction process. 
Because of the universality of the image of the mourning mother and dying naked man, Alsatian memorials allow for several interpretations and therefore several narratives to share one commemorative space. To a French viewer, Alsatian femininity as depicted on war memorials could easily integrate the French national narrative. As both world wars seriously challenged France's gender order, the interwar period was characterised by gender politics attempting to re-establish traditional gender roles as part of France's post-war reconstruction. Women's role was to be returned to the private sphere to be good housewives. Low natality, especially compared to Germany's higher birth rate, was a major concern in interwar France, often considered a sign of moral decline. Women, by performing their housewifely and motherly duty, were to strengthen France both physically and morally. On Alsatian memorials, mothers, accompanied by their children, are a common picture. In Detviller, Ipfig or Geisposalm, for example, the statues depict a mother holding a toddler and accompanied by a young child. Here, these mothers represent the future of the nation. Associated with inscriptions in French on the memorial, one can easily interpret these women as French mothers, representing the future of the nation raising French children in Alsace. Depicting a very traditional femininity, these women perfectly match France's post-war gender discourse. Another very common feminine character on Alsatian memorials is the Alsacienne. The Alsacienne is a woman dressed in a local folk costume made of a large skirt, an apron and a huge black bow. As a symbol of the region since the mid-19th century, images of the Alsacienne were used throughout the wars by pro-French propaganda. The Alsacienne was portrayed as a defender of a French identity in the region whilst under German authority, often presented as a rebellious figure resisting German soldiers, she was also depicted as part of France's national family, as Marianne's last daughter. These images, which proved popular between 1870 and 1945, were well known of the French public in the interwar period. For a French viewer, the Alsacienne's image on the war memorials is a reminder of wartime images and therefore a symbol of Alsace's determination to remain French. On Alsatian memorials, femininity can thus easily be interpreted as a symbol of Frenchness, an element of France's national discourse about identity, memory and the nation. When the Third Reich annexed Alsace in 1940, some memorials were destroyed because they were considered too French. Images of the Alsacienne, which were known in Germany too as a symbol of French Alsace, were destroyed in several villages and rebuilt after 1945. Interestingly, however, Images of mourning mothers were not pulled down. In Strasbourg, the statue of the mourning Pieta holding two naked dying sons, commonly known to represent a French and a German soldier, was not destroyed. The French inscription was simply replaced by a German one, representing a traditional femininity that also fitted Nazi Germany's definition of womanhood. The mourning mothers remained and integrated the German memory narrative where the image of a marching soldier would have come into contradiction with the new national narrative, the universality of feminine mourning and motherhood allowed for the memorial to be accepted into the new national narrative, thus remaining a space for commemoration for the community. After all, war memorials were built by and for the community to come and mourn. A third narrative thus comes through, that of the local community. This ambiguity between French and German experience is at the heart of Alsatian identity. 
more than an absence of nation, the lack of clear reference <coughs> to France or Germany is actually a statement. The local community will remain neutral in the France versus Germany dispute. The way both masculinity and femininity are depicted on Alsatian war memorials clearly reinforces the local identity. Images of mothers bringing their children to the memorial portray women as teachers of the local history and identity. In Saint-Hippolyte, for example, the memorial represents two women accompanying their children to visit the memorial. All characters are turned towards the list of names to remember the local men who died. In this very lively scene, one can only imagine the questions asked by the young boys and girls about the local history relating to the memorial. In a region where the national French history curriculum omits the Alsatian men's experience in the German army, women here play a crucial role, that of maintaining the local narrative when it is silenced on the national scene. More recently, Alsatian war memorials have become a crucial centre of the defence of Alsatian history. Over the last 15 to 20 years, the French National Day of Remembrance has been used in Alsace as an occasion to remind the population that Alsatian men did not fight for France, rather in the German army. In Oldsheim, men dressed as both French and German soldiers take part in the commemoration. The mayor of the German twin village also attends, and the German traditional song Echart ein Kameraden, I had a comrade, is solemnly sung following the Marseillaise. Neither French nor German, Alsatian memorials become a hybrid space of commemoration where both French and German narratives are shared. There is, however, one narrative that remains constant throughout the changes of nationality and interpretation, that of reconciliation and European construction. Representations of both Alsatian femininity and masculinity are a plea for peace. On war memorials, Alsatian masculinity is given a secondary role. As opposed to the strong, powerful French soldiers, Alsatian men are depicted as dying victims, infantilised and reduced to the status of innocent children. They did not die for the nation. In fact, the memorial does not give much justification for their death, apart perhaps to protect the mother and her children. War is presented as a pointless pursuit, and rather than victory, pain, death and grief are placed at the centre of Alsatian memory. A lot of memorials are accompanied by the Latin word pax, peace, like an injunction from the dead or the mourning mothers. Commemoration ceremonies are also used to promote Franco-German reconciliation and European construction, with speeches clearly oriented towards building a future together rather than celebrating victory. In Strasbourg, on the memorial, the two dying men, former enemies, are holding hand in the last injunction for peace. Placing femininity and grief at the centre of the local memory narrative, rather than victory and national pride, Alsatian memorials allow for a multitude of interpretation and narratives. Both French and German narratives thus share a common commemorative space. The local narrative is not a narrative of one nation fighting the other, but rather a narrative of a hybrid identity and memory, a space where nations can come and mourn together, and a compromise between two highly contradicting narratives. Motherhood and femininity, by appearing nationally and politically neutral, become a statement through Alsatian memory, a statement about the unique local experience and identity, and a statement for the reconciliation of two nations. One memorial one local memory, a narrative of nations.
Well, hi, Lily, and thank you so much for your very insightful presentation, which could hardly be more relevant to our current theme, uh, Narratives of Nation. And I'm sure some of our listeners will remember the name Alsace-Lorraine from high school history classes, um, but it's great to learn more about Alsace, uh, as it is known today, in more detail. So I was kind of wondering what drew you to this research initially? Do you have a personal connection with, with Alsace? <laughs> Yes, I do actually. I'm Alsatian, so I'm from there. I was born there and I grew up there all my life. And I got I've always been interested in the questions of identity there because it's something so strong. Um and I got really into memorials. It's more of a personal connection because my grandma, who isn't from Alsace, was always fascinated and by Alsatian history and telling me, Look, you've got your memorials are so different. It's so interesting, and that's sort of how I got into it. Interesting. Yeah, we'll return to the um, the memorials later because that's a really fascinating aspect of your research. Um, but I wondered first, I mean, have you yourself then experienced this kind of identity confusion that you referred to in your presentation? So I'm going to give a really personal answer, but basically, so I'm Alsatian. That's part of my identity because I was born and raised there, but my parents aren't Alsatian. So they came to the, to the region um, just before I was born. And I grew up surrounded by Asian people and I picked up the accent a little bit because obviously my teachers who taught me how to speak and write had the accent as well um, and I always remember the first time I got really confronted to this question of identity was for me it was never questioned I was Alsatian but that I was French first because my parents aren't Alsatian and then uh, went to secondary school and met um, a young girl who wasn't from Alsace and she said to me oh my god you've got such a strong accent <laughs> um, which made me feel really odd because I was like oh okay well I never considered my Alsatian identity as being stronger than my French identity because again my family isn't originally from the region um, so I think it's something that's sort of in the everyday uh part of your everyday life when you live there um even since I've moved to the UK whenever I meet people from Germany or Switzerland if I say oh I'm Alsatian the first question they ask oh so you speak German then and they immediately switch to German because there's this sort of assumption that um if you come from there you've got a, a sort of multicultural identity and therefore you speak French and German and you're sort of a mix of both cultures yeah, I was going to ask about that. So if we were to visit Alsace today, would we still perceive that blend of French and German culture? And in what ways would that be kind of manifested? Yeah, I think you would. Um, the first thing is, so you, you'd get there and the architecture is quite Germanic. If you go into sort of the small traditional villages, you'd immediately notice the houses, they look very German. Um, and then walking around the towns and the cities, you'd meet some young people who'd be speaking French, but you'd probably meet some of the elders from the village who'd be gathered together and they'd speak either French, which is a very strong German accent, or they will speak the local dialect, Alsatian, which is a version of high German. Um, so again, to, to an untrained ear, it would probably sound like German. Um, when you go to the shops, you'd see loads of sort of German style sausages and food, because that's part of the local tradition as well. So you'd, it is very much part of the everyday life there. And you talk of, um, yeah, this kind of hybrid identity was the phrase that you used, right, of Alsace uh, between French and German. Uh, and you gave a very like comprehensive overview of why that has mattered over recent history. Um, and this is a deliberately blunt question I'm going to pose, so forgive me. But to what extent does Alsace's national identity matter today? Like, Is it still a point of contention at all? I think 
today it's admitted that Alsace is French and there's not really anyone who says that Alsace should be German but there's a lot of movements um, who support political parties who support autonomy so the idea that Alsace should maybe join with the the neighboring Baden-Württemberg region in Germany and sort of be a more autonomous region a sort of Franco-German European pure space um, which would remain French but with more autonomy in their laws and to be able to create a fully multicultural space. Um, so that's on the sort of political scale. I think in terms of individuality, people don't necessarily always feel like that, but they certainly feel that they need to defend their local identity. And I think the the, the, the current conflict in the Ukraine has reinforced this idea that this issue actually matters because there are some sort of arguments that are used in the Ukraine uh, and by by Russia specifically that are the same arguments that basically Bismarck used to say that Alsace was German. Well, he used the same similar argumentation um, by Russia to say that Ukraine should be Russian. Um, and similar histories happening with forced conscription there and the things like that, which has reinforced this idea in the region anyway that this history is important and matters because it is repeating itself and that it should be more broadly sort of shared so that it doesn't repeat itself. Yes, I was going to ask that, like what can we learn from the case study of Alsace in, in relation to today's uh, environment with um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and possibly in light of Brexit as well and these questions about nationhood generally, but you've just uh, you've answered that very well there. But is there anything else that you think um, we could learn from from Alsace generally? I think one of the things certainly that I've learned since I've been looking specifically at the way memory was done is the importance of dealing with memory and how the narratives that are created around memory after a conflict matter to sort of the political future of the area. So in Alsace, because very early on, uh, memory was built around the idea of Franco-German, uh, being Franco-German, being sort of Europe, it has now become part of the identity of this region, this idea that we were the first European because we've always been sort of Franco-German and multicultural. Um, and it has allowed for the region to become a centre in Europe with obviously the parliament in Strasbourg, but also where uh, very frequently you've got Franco-German meetings happening. Um, and yeah, the importance, I think, of memory in um, helping sort of future international relations. And like you say preserving that memory so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past I suppose as well. In Alsace the, the, the history of the what we call the malgré nous so literally despite us those young men who were forcibly enrolled in the German army during the second world war is something that is still very much um, very much felt there and very much of an issue that people want to discuss more especially in the recent years because it's been silenced since the end of the Second World War for a long, long time. And and I think now that people see that actually it's happening in the Ukraine as well, this is the, this is the kind of thing that people want to sort of teach more on a broader audience because that is the kind of thing they that people don't want repeated because it's really horrible process that people go through. So how have those conversations emerged then? Do you mean in terms of education or just does it just kind of uh, appear in public life a bit more? So the question of education is the main the main one. So the one that people seem to be fighting most for. And by people, I mean, especially local politicians. So I had actually an interview with a local politician last week. And um, that is literally our fight is to try and include Alsatian history and especially the history of the Malgrenu in the French um, history manuals and, and curriculums. 
because at the moment, so I grew up in Alsace and never ever learned anything about Alsatian history at school because it's the French sort of narrative that is taught. Um, so adding this to the to the general national curriculum is part of, of this. Um, but there is also having it more in the public debate, um, interviewing the last Malgré nous and trying to record their interviews because obviously this it's a generation that is now slowly passing away. Um, and just, yeah, publishing books. There's There's been a lot of work in the last 10, 20 years to try and get that story out in the public space, in the sort of the school space, um, and just as broadly as possible. So when you were growing up in Alsace and not learning about Alsatian history, did you think that was odd at the time or did it take a little bit of time to pass for you to realise that was a bit strange? It took a bit of time because at the time I was too young. So for me, it was just, you know, you learn what you're taught on you by the teachers mm. and you just follow that. And then the more I was thinking about it, when I sort of grew a bit older um, and I suppose around sort of 16, 18, I suddenly think, well, actually, why aren't we learning about this? Why? Because um, if we were to go to the local museums, obviously, that's what we would have learned. And why don't we go to those museums with the school? Why do we go to the national ones and learn a different history? That was sort of. I see what triggered a bit so even yeah so the so even to the, the extent of avoiding certain museums and and places that was the kind of steps that the school took to to stop you I suppose to stop you finding out would that be too strong or I don't know if it was like clear avoidance um I think it was more because it didn't fit within the curriculum the national curriculum they just didn't take us there because it wouldn't fit within what we were meant to to learn and obviously they would teach take us to the museums whose narratives would fit to what they were teaching us. Um, so the, going to a, a local museum didn't fit within what we were meant to learn. So that's why we didn't go. I didn't think it was a like a, an obvious um, avoidance to try and stop us from learning about it. I just think it's just because it didn't fit in into wider narrative. Yeah, that's true. And I wonder how much agency the schools themselves sort of actually had in that rather than just following a curriculum, like you say. Um, and you, you emphasise the uh, role of femininity and gender in this kind of identity confusion uh, with specific reference to the war memorials. We heard that in your presentation. Mm -hmm. So what led you to think that these memorials, particularly analysed through the lens of gender, could be productive tools of analysis? Well, the way I started is because, so my grandma was always saying, you know, those memorials are so different, look at them. And and the first thing to me that was obvious, more than the inscriptions, which is what she was talking about, was the fact that on French memorials, they're statues of soldiers, which makes sense because you're meant to remember the soldiers there. Whereas we more, more often than not have statues of women uh, rather than men. And so I, that's how sort of how I started. And I was like, okay, why is that? Why does it mean um, to have a woman where we would expect a man even in England most memorials would have statues of of men and soldiers and so that's sort of how it started and and I think it's a useful analysis because to me memorials tell a story as a specific narrative that the local community and with a compromise with the nation as well sort of creates on how they want to understand and remember the past um and one way of understanding that narrative, which isn't necessarily obvious when you just look at the memorial, you could just think, well, that's just a statue, is to look at exactly what kind of people are represented on there. And if it's a woman or if it's a man, what kind of femininity is represented on there? What kind of masculinity and what does that tell us? And that's what's also really interesting with Alsatian memorials is that 
femininity is presented as sort of the strong element in the nation, in the active position, um, often standing really tall, really strong, whereas the men are represented more as sort of innocent victims, sort of to the side, almost a secondary character, which I always found, found fascinating because obviously those memorials built in the interwar at a time where it was the opposite within society, where men were the leading force and women the secondary characters. And what do you know about the the logic then or the kind of motivation behind those kinds of statues being foregrounded, do you think? So I think, so you mean as in why women sort of... Yeah, and then and then like women. you say, why why men may be relegated to the sidelines a bit more. Like who was making those decisions? Why were those decisions made, I suppose? Well, so I think the most obvious reason why it was done like that is because obviously having a statue of a soldier would be too controversial because a French one when for the local people wouldn't work um, because obviously their sons got shot probably by a French soldier but then vice versa a German soldier wouldn't do because they need to prove that they are French now so that didn't work whereas a mother is universal a mother is every side of the conflict as her mother has a woman a sister or a wife waiting at home and mourning after the war so it's it's a universal image uh, which means that in villages where some men fought for France and other for Germany, they can all be remembered together with that image. But also that would sort of allow for the local community to create a memorial that means something to them. And that would at the same time be approved by the, the national government, by the French government. Because part of memorial construction, uh, a lot of the decision was made by whoever had the money. And for the villages who didn't have enough money, they needed to ask for money from the, the central government, who would then need to approve or disapprove the project. And one can only assume that if they had suddenly said, oh, well, we'll have a proud German soldier on a memorial, uh, but we need money for that, the French government would have probably refused to pay for that. Um, so it's very much a compromise and I think that's that's the thing on every single level whether it's symbolic or or on the, the sort of the money level of what can be done and and we need both camps to agree femininity becomes this sort of compromise yeah that makes sense like a universal symbol like you said yeah um so you mentioned there the role of the local community they communities had an active role did they in deciding these memorials and kind of forming memory I suppose in that kind of embodied way Yes. So it usually started in most villages immediately after the war. People wanted to build a memorial to the point that sometimes they started before even getting the town council involved or any sort of authority. They just decided, OK, let's prop a few stock uh, like rocks here and we'll we'll get our memorial done, uh, which would then usually prompt the council to say, no, 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 we need planning permission. Let's have a look at where in the village it should be. And that would start the project. So the village would hire an architect. Um, would hire workmen, uh, start maybe um, sort of consultation uh, with deciding where the memorial should be in the village because that had also a lot of meaning, um, what it should look like. There was often loads of different projects that were sort of put in competition. So in Mulhouse, for example, there were loads of architects. There was a competition, loads of architects offered projects and then one was elected best and one um, and that was how it happened in most cities and in some villages as well. And then once the project was drafted, um, it needed to be sent to the French authorities. So there's the prefect, which is um, the sort of 
local governor of a, of a region or a department in France, um, but sort of a delegate of the French state who would have to approve the memorial project, um, the symbolic of it and the idea of it, uh, whether it was a good idea or not. And then it would go to the French direction of the arts who would decide whether it was aesthetically pleasing enough to become a memorial. <laughs> and once the project had gone through both approval, it would go back to the village and they could then build the memorial wow but sorry i know it's really long but in <laughs> no, some villages on. there were actually instances where the the local people if they had enough money would gather with the village decide on a project and just start building without asking um asking for permission from the french government uh, and we just start building the memorial and you get some really funny letters from the prefect in the archive saying, why have you started the memorial? You should have waited for my approval. Um, and did those statues so remain think... then? Did those statues, are they still standing, the ones that were built by the, the local community or did were they raised to the ground by the government or anything? No, most of them, they remain because I think the, the prefect, as much as his, he didn't like having his authority undermined, I'm sure, realised that for a memorial to play its role, the community need to approve it and need to to want it. Um, and it was very clear in the archives as well that if the village had enough money, then the French government couldn't do anything. There's a village called saint croix plain where on the memorial they've got the statue of a pope who was born in the village. And um, in the archives, the prefect and the direction of the architecture both agreed that they didn't like the idea of the memorial, that it was ugly. <laughs> they didn't want that. But because the villagers are paying for it, there's nothing they can do because if they're paying, then they can do what they want. So that's okay. how the local community got more agency by paying for the memorial and through su subscriptions and things like that. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if we can learn something from Alsace then in terms of kind of city planning as well and memory building, because a lot of these decisions come from the top down often, don't they, rather than the bottom up. But I know you said there's lots of stages for it to go through and lots of processes, but yeah, maybe that's another lesson we can learn. Talking about local community again there, do you think in Alsace there's ever been a difference between how local communities and local governments define and perceive the kind of identity of the region? Do those things two things match up are there some kind of is there some dissonance there what do you think about that one that's a really interesting question I think the thing is the way I understand it um is that when you push against their identity people will group to defend that identity so whenever sort of the French government suggests that the Alsatians are French and we should forget about all the special laws that are in, in Alsace that are different from the rest of France and everything like that, suddenly everyone agrees on what is Alsatian and suddenly everyone sort of defends that identity, those specific laws and everything and that culture and identity. But then within Alsace itself, there are some disagreements. Um, the local dialect, there's actually sort of different... Um, not just accent, but actually different ways of speaking and writing the dialect, whether you're in northern Alsace or in southern Alsace. Um, there's arguments about sort of, yeah, language quite a lot, uh, even in, in sort of uh, French, uh, the way French is spoken in the north or in the south. So it's, I think it's one of those things where the local community comes together to defend its identity when it feels it's under threat. But then when it feels it's not, then people will sort of not fight strongly, but will have disagreement within the region about their own culture and identities. Yeah, that's well put. I think sometimes you need something to defend, don't you, in terms of 
building an identity in a way there needs to be that siege mentality a little bit i suppose um and how do you do you feel like you're i'm just thinking that when you go say to a different country and you, you become the kind of correspondent for that country right and you have to kind of you know talk for the whole of britain if you go to america or something and um and then then your, your identity kind of your national identity kind of grows more much more so than it would do in the actual country itself do you feel like that about about alsace does it kind of grow as you are away from it definitely um obviously because i'm studying it constantly at the moment for me mm. it's becoming even stronger um but i think even before that as well as in when i was in alsace it was just sort of normal so i never really questioned my identity never really thought about it it was just who i was and it was part of being french but when i visited my family outside of alsace or when they came to visit then suddenly i felt really strongly about no no i am definitely Alsatian and not french mm. um and it's definitely something that you see a lot there, that there are some people, if you ask them, where are you from? They'll say, well, I'm Alsatian before they say I'm French. Um, so it's it's definitely something that grows as soon as you're confronted to something that isn't part of that culture. Then suddenly you feel like you need to sort of, um, yeah, perform maybe that identity a bit more strongly. I read earlier that in 2011, former French president Nicolas Sarkozy made an awkward slip when he commented on being in Germany when he was actually in the Alsatian town of Truchtersheim, probably butchered that pronunciation, but um, I guess that kind of epitomizes this kind of hybrid identity, like you say. Do you remember that that episode? Yes, I remember that vividly. And I remember I was at school and, and sort of the outrage, even in the young generations. And I think that's what I was most maybe impressed is not the right word, but most shocked by is that I thought only the adult would really care. And it wasn't the case at all. The kids at school were so, um, yeah, outrageous, really the word. Everyone was like, oh my God, you can't possibly have said that. This is literally his part of his territory and he's saying we're German. But again, it's one of those things is that because he said that um, that we were German, then people were immediately like, no, 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 we are French. Like you realize we're part of your of your geographical map. But um, the question that I'll be interested in is if he'd said that we were definitely French now, would have people reacted the same? But by saying, no, actually, look, we've got a multicultural region and we are actually quite a bit German as well. Um, so it was a very interesting slip to observe. But it was, yeah, it was a lot of anger in the region for quite, I'd say, probably at least a year after that. Wow. That's good in a way. It's good that the school kids are kind of engaged with it rather than apathetic, I suppose. <laughs> Were you one of the uh, one of the angry ones? Um, no, because at that point I wasn't necessarily questioning my identity as much. I was more of an observer because, again, having grown up in the region but in a family that isn't from that region, um, I was always encouraged to have the sort of the the overlooker sort of um, gaze and then sort of have even though it was part of my identity to sort of look at it in terms of oh that's interesting what's happening here. Mm. And you're still doing that in a way with analysing it now, I suppose. <laughs> um, Pretty much. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, as we've just discussed, lots to learn about, uh, lots to learn from, sorry, uh, Alsace, um, in terms of nationhood and identity. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much, Lily, for providing that that overview and that contribution. That was great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it was lovely. Cheers. Many thanks to Lily for that very stimulating contribution and discussion and we'll have more episodes on the theme of narratives of nation coming up over the next few weeks if you'd like to get involved with technicast yourself and maybe turn your research into a podcast please do get in touch at technicaster that's technicast with an er on the end at gmail 
www.thepodcastmedia.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>